Happy Resurrection Day to all of you. Uh, we still uh, grieve that we cannot be together to celebrate our Lord's resurrection, but uh, we are seeking to be faithful and celebrate from the privacy of our own homes with our families. And I hope that your reflections on Jesus's resurrection today, uh, if you're watching this on Easter Sunday, uh, are fruitful and uh, beneficial for your family and uh, edifying. And I, I'm praying for all of you that uh, you will get a glimpse of the risen Lord this morning, uh, whenever you're watching this, uh, from the scriptures that will have a powerful impact on your life. And so would you join me for a brief word of prayer? Father, we come to you uh, longing to be together. We are longing for presence and we grieve that we cannot be physically together for uh, celebration of your son's resurrection and victory over all that ails us ultimately. And so we pray that uh, our celebration and our remembrance will be no less uh, impactful, no less significant from having to be uh, at home and isolated uh, apart from one another as family. Pray, Father, that your word might uh, redound to your glory, that we would be confident in the presence of your resurrected son, our resurrected king with us. He is with us because he is risen. So we thank you, Father, that you have delivered uh, a salvation to us, a rescue of us that cannot be touched by illness, that cannot be affected by viruses or disease. Thank you that the power that brings us to life is the resurrection power of your son and nothing can touch or taint that. So we, we come to your word hungry. We come to your word needy. We pray that you would speak and that you would impact us, change us, grow us, deepen us in our evaluation and in our appreciation for what's been done on our behalf. Help us to understand more clearly significance of Jesus' resurrection. Help us to see him as he really is right now for us in heaven, having risen from the dead, having taken his seat at your right hand. Oh, Father, let us worship well as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As quarantine continues, as the virus continues to spread and threaten people's health and their very lives, we find ourselves attempting to celebrate Easter in our homes, separated by necessity from each other. What do we need most on this day? I'm convinced that we need to see Jesus today. We need to see Jesus in his resurrected glory. And to see that most clearly, we will turn to the book of Revelation. If we could see Jesus as he really is right now, I'm convinced that our trust in him would strengthen. It would solidify so that we can endure this trial with wisdom and even joy. Easter Sunday is a personally important day for me. It's a time that I get to reflect back on when God saved me from death 23 years ago now. I was baptized on Easter Sunday in 1997. The week prior to that, I think the day was March 30th, uh, on a Saturday evening, 
God awakened me to new life, exercised his resurrection power in the deadness of my soul and brought me to life. And so I love Easter Sunday for all the same reasons that you love it and some others besides. Uh, and so I'm glad to be able to share from the scriptures, the same scriptures that God used to awaken me to life all those years ago. It's probably not typical or traditional for an Easter message to come from the book of Revelation. But I wonder if so often the book of Revelation is centrally discussed in the midst of uh, debates and conflicts about the future and about the end of history, so much so that we lose sight of the actual primary point of the book of Revelation, which is very simple. The book of Revelation is a complex book. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that it's easy. Uh, but its primary message is quite simple. And so I'd like to take a few moments before we get into the text today to share with you why I think it's so fitting that we would open the book of Revelation this day on Easter Sunday of all Sundays and why it's fitting that we would spend time reading the book of Revelation in our daily lives as well. The book of Revelation has one primary message that I think I can summarize pretty simply in one sentence. The book of Revelation is designed by God to show you Jesus. That's the main point. It's to give you a picture. It is visionary literature, after all, of the risen king that we worship today. It's to show you Jesus. But there are two practical applications of that primary point of the book of Revelation that, it, that it's driving for in your life. So if you read the book of Revelation, you ought to be asking the question at every page, at every chapter, at every verse, how does this show me who Jesus really is? How does this passage, this section show me Jesus as he really is right now? And then when you answer that question, when you see that rising up out of the text, what do you do? What's the response that the book of Revelation wants you to make at every point throughout this book? It's very simple. It's twofold. The book of Revelation wants to show us Jesus as he really is so that we will repent from sin and endure suffering. That's what the book of Revelation is about, primarily and fundamentally. It wants to show us Jesus as he really is so that you and I as Christians will repent from sin and endure suffering. And I believe that's what you and I need more than anything else today and every day. And so I'm excited to open the book of Revelation with you today. And I've been praying for you and for myself that God would show us Jesus as he really is, not as we might like him to be, not as we might imagine him to be, but as he truly is right now in heaven. And when we see him, when we see him as he really is, that is the power that comes into our lives to turn us away from our sin and to help us endure suffering in our lives. And so with that fundamental need on the table, that's what you need, that's what I need more than anything else, more than I need food, more than I need water. I need to see Jesus as he really is. And that's what you need also. And if you do see him, if you get a glimpse of him, 
I'm convinced that that will drive out some of the lesser desires that we are so preoccupied with in our everyday lives. And that will give us the fortitude that we need to endure the suffering of this world in all of its forms. And so wherever you are, whenever you're watching this, I invite you to open a Bible to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at the opening vision of the book of Revelation. If you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know that it's composed of a series of visions. The first one given to John is recorded for us in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. And that's what we'll open up today. So I'd like to begin looking at this passage. We'll start with verses 9 to 11, where John introduces himself and he shares with us how he received this message, this book, as a message from the Lord for his partners. So let's look at Revelation 1, verses 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So John introduces himself here in a way that we might not expect. I believe that this is John the Apostle that we know from the Gospels. In fact, the Gospel of John seems to refer to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We might expect him to introduce himself that way, or at least I, John the Apostle, but he doesn't. John also wrote three letters in the New Testament uh, that we call 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, rather unoriginally. In 2 John and 3 John, he introduces himself as the elder to the church to whom he was writing, most likely the church in Ephesus. But here, he doesn't do that either. Rather, he introduces himself as your brother. He's wanting to level out some commonality between them. He's wanting to highlight his connection to them, not so much his authority over them, although that's there too. He's wanting to share with them and to show that he is sharing with them in all that they're experiencing. He's their brother. And he goes on and adds this other term, partner, to emphasize that very point. It's a Greek word that's related to the word koinonia. Fellowship is how we often translate it. Here, it has the idea of someone who is sharing with other people. And that might be sharing resources, sharing life, sharing a meal, or sharing experiences. You see, John is isolated from these people, these churches that he loves, these Christians that are his real family, his brothers and sisters. But he wants them to know that he is actually sharing their experiences. Even though they're apart physically, they're not in the same place, they're going through the same things. And he wants to establish that at the beginning of this message. I'm with you in everything that's going on in your life right now. How appropriate for us to consider our own situation here today. But he specifies three realities that he shares with these believers to whom he's writing. But what we're going to see is that they're actually one thing. 
First, he says, I am your partner in the tribulation. Partner, sharer in the tribulation. This Greek word is an important word in the New Testament. It pops up many times throughout the New Testament, but only a few times in the book of Revelation itself. The physical meaning of the word has to do with pressure, something that squeezes like a vice or crushes. And it gets applied to any kind of pressure that we experience in life. We might talk about stress. They would have used this Greek word, tribulation. But it gets applied to all these different kinds of circumstances, whether it's the angst that we feel internally or whether it's pressure brought on us by people in power, taking advantage of people without power, uh, what we might call persecution or oppression of any kind. Tribulation is this squeezing, this crushing of your life, and it takes all kinds of different forms, even illness or the threat of illness in a pandemic would fall under this category of tribulation. And John says, I'm with you in your experiences of pressure and suffering and tribulation. He is in exile. He's been isolated from them. He's been being punished by the Roman authorities, it seems. He's been exiled. That's a form that this tribulation takes. But he's writing to these Christians in Asia Minor, in these seven particular cities where Christians gather Sunday after Sunday to hear the word of God. And they're experiencing the tribulation as well that takes on many different forms. John's writing at the end of the first century under a Roman emperor named Domitian who, at least during part of his reign, targeted Christians because they wouldn't worship him as a god or because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. That felt threatening for this power-hungry emperor, and so he targeted them as an enemy and pulled down the full weight of his Roman authority to punish them, often entering their houses to take away their possessions, taking their family away, arresting them, putting them in prison where they might be tortured and ultimately executed under Roman authority, hanging them on Roman crosses or cutting off their head. So John is wanting to tell them, I'm with you in all of that. I'm isolated here, suffering the same tribulation that you are. And I want you to know that I'm with you, even if I'm physically distant from you. I am your partner, your sharer in this tribulation that we are going through together. I echo John's sentiments with you. But then he adds a word that begins to disorient us already. He says, I am your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. And of course, he's referring to the kingdom of God. And he's saying, right now, I am a partner with you in the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Jesus brought into this world when he came into this world as the king. Where the king goes, so goes the kingdom. And so Jesus brings his authority into this world in the incarnation. When he comes and lives in this world as a man, he is coming as the human king. The true king that God had always designed for humanity to live under. He brings the kingdom. And so now John is saying... We are truly citizens of that kingdom right now, even as we go through this tribulation. 
Even as we suffer in this world, we are truly citizens of the kingdom of God. We are the citizens of the kingdom of God. That citizenship is more important than your Roman citizenship or your American citizenship. As Christians, we ought to recognize that our citizenship in heaven is more important than any earthly citizenship that we have. And John wants to remind them of that right up front. Your identity is rooted in the true king, in your connection to him. And so together, we together are partners, sharers together in the kingdom, even as we suffer tribulation. See, the tribulation and the kingdom go together. That's not something that they would have expected. That's not something we tend to expect. But the Bible tells us plainly, the New Testament is very plain and consistent on this point. The kingdom of God and the tribulation in this world go together. Jesus said the night before he died, in the world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. And he's saying, I have overcome the, wor I have overcome the world as the king. I have won the royal victory. And he does that through the cross and the resurrection. And so now his followers, his subjects, we are subjects of the king of kings. Now we live in this world experiencing tribulation every day in a variety of forms. But that doesn't deny our citizenship as citizens, as king, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is who we really are. No matter what happens to us, no matter what form tribulation takes, whether it be cancer that eats away at the body, whether it be the government raining down prohibitions on us to preach the gospel or to uh, meet openly, as it so often does in other countries, or whether people come in and kill us with guns, or whether a virus spreads through our community and our church family. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, no matter what. See, the tribulation and the kingdom can go together because the tribulation ends. The kingdom never ends. The tribulation has a certain end date, but the kingdom of God has no end date. It will never end. So even as we experience the turmoil and the tension of tribulation and kingdom, we know and we can have hope that the kingdom will never end. Tribulation will end. So he starts here to encourage this point of enduring suffering. Why should we endure? Because tribulation will end, but the kingdom will never end. So let's endure. And so he highlights right here at the very beginning, and he adds that very point. See it again here. I am your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance. If tribulation and kingdom are going to be going on at the same time, that calls us out to respond with patient endurance. When we face suffering of any kind, bodily, the oppression of enemies or evil governments, the call on us is to patiently endure suffering. And John puts that here first. But notice also what he adds. He adds the phrase that are in Jesus. See, the tribulation is in Jesus. The kingdom is in Jesus, and the patient endurance is in Jesus. And as Christians, our fundamental identity is that we are in Jesus, in Christ. And so our identity is wrapped up in being connected to him. 
What did he experience in his life, if not tribulation, even as he was the king? Tribulation and kingdom. He experienced both of those in his own earthly ministry. How did he deal with it? He patiently endured all the way to the cross, all the way to death, and thereby, paradoxically, winning the victory over his enemies. And so if Jesus the king experienced tribulation and kingdom all at the same time, we as his followers should expect nothing different. Didn't he call us to take up our crosses when he called us to follow him? Didn't he call us to die? I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, this call to discipleship is a call to die. And so it is. We endure suffering, we endure tribulation because we're citizens of the kingdom, because we're in Christ. Paul used a similar phrase. He encouraged us to share in the sufferings of the Messiah. And that's exactly what John is picturing here. And he's highlighting his own connection and continuity with these churches in Asia Minor. I'm in exile, he's saying. I'm isolated from you, but I'm experiencing the same suffering that you are, even as I experience the same relationship with the king that you do. So That's where he starts this letter. That's how he introduces himself in the midst of this message that is to be sent out to the seven churches. We are partners together in this. And so these three phrases, the tribulation, the kingdom, the patient endurance, are all one thing. They're really describing the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is the life in Jesus that's characterized by tribulation, the benefits of the kingdom of God at the same time, and our response of patient endurance in the midst of it all. And so he then tells about his own circumstances when he receives this message. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He had been exiled, it seems, for preaching the gospel. Now, when we read that, we often think that the Roman government has come and come in and isolated John because he's making converts, right? He's taking Roman citizens and turning them into Christians who don't worship the Roman gods and don't live the Roman way anymore. And that's true, to be sure, but I think there's something more going on here. You see, John is involved with these seven churches that he writes to here. The word of God that he preaches and the testimony of Jesus that he proclaims is not only to outsiders, but it's also to these churches. And so um, I've given you a map in your sermon notes. You can probably see it on the screen now. And you can look there and see that the cities that are listed are listed in this particular order. We'll come back to that sequence there in just a bit. But John has had dealings with all of these churches. Think about it. He's probably an old man by now. He's probably been ministering among these churches for 30 or 40 years by this point. And so I think more of what might be going on in this exile is that John, this elder, is presenting a threat to the Roman authorities because he is strengthening these churches. He's building them up by his continued preaching of the gospel week in and week out as an elder to these believers. Yes, he's making converts, but more than that, he's encouraging these believers in Asia Minor to keep on resisting the oppression of the Roman government. 
He's saying to them, don't conform. Keep holding fast to Jesus. And so the Roman authorities are looking at that and they're saying, they are strong because of this old man continuing to minister among them. We must eliminate his influence if we're ever going to stamp out this Christian movement. So they perceive that this old man is having this power, but they won't kill him because that would just make him a martyr, a hero in that sense. And so they say, we know how to fix him. Let's take him away. Let's isolate him from the churches. Let's exile him on the island of Patmos. And then the churches will die because we've taken away their leader. I hope you can see the irony. John is exiled on the island of Patmos when God gives him this. The Roman governor says, I know what will eliminate John and his influence in strengthening the Christians. Let's isolate him. Let's exile him to the island of Patmos. God gives him this book of Revelation that becomes scripture that initially is sent out to these seven churches and serve to build them up evermore because it's God's very word. And then beyond that, 2,000 years later, we are being built up by this same book. I love it when we can see how God takes what is truly evil and wicked, the Roman governor trying to eliminate an elder of the church, and turns it for exponentially beyond whatever could have been imagined. This is an example of that very thing. And so John is in exile, and he receives this message. Verse 10 tells us more about his circumstances. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He probably just means I was in a posture where I could receive revelation from God. It seems to be uh, somewhat of a unique experience, unique to uh, maybe John and maybe other apostles and prophets. He, he's uh, describing an experience like what we read about with the prophet Ezekiel specifically, where the spirit would pick Ezekiel up and carry him off to places to give him a special message for God's people. But John specifies that this happened on the Lord's Day. This is probably a reference to Sunday, the first day of the week when Christians were gathering together. And I think he mentions it on purpose. This is not a throwaway reference. Oh, by the way, it happened to be Sunday when all this happened. But I think he's wanting to strengthen that tie between himself and these seven churches. Because what are they doing on the Lord's Day? They're gathering together to hear God's word. And what would normally have probably been happening was that John would have been there, at least in one of those churches, preaching to them, giving them God's word, expounding God's word to them as well. Now he's gone, but he's still receiving a message from the Lord for them. And so he tells them up front, as you guys were gathered together on the Lord's day to receive God's word and to worship God, I also was receiving from God for you, just like what we've always done and even more so. And so John then hears this voice. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Notice the comparisons that we see here. John had an experience, and he's grasping for language to describe it to his readers so that they can understand what he experienced. Now, if two of you had the same experience or witnessed the same event, 
You might describe it, tell it in different ways. You might uh, describe it uh, very differently, in fact. Or even if one of us had an experience, and uh, we might tell it one way right after the experience happened, and then 10 years down the road, we might look back at that experience and tell it with different phrases and different language, and even maybe get a different point out of that experience. John is borrowing language here purposefully to highlight the meaning of all of this. We'll see more of that in the coming verses, but here he's heard this loud voice, and he's trying to communicate to his readers what it was like. What did it sound like? He says, like a trumpet, like a ram's horn being blown. And I think he just means it was loud and clear. The clearness of the notes blown on a trumpet or a ram's horn is referred to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 8 to illustrate the point that what is done in public worship ought to be clear and understandable to people. This suggests that a noteworthy characteristic of a trumpet or bugle or ram's horn or shofar is that it can produce clearly distinct notes. And so it could be a readily available symbol to convey that some sound is loud and clear, as we would say. But he's trying to get us as readers and them uh, as readers to understand what it was like. But here's what the voice said, commanding him, write what you see in a book. Now, don't think of a, a bound volume like this, right? Those weren't invented quite yet. It'd be a few years after this book of Revelation. Uh, was written that we get the bound volume. He's telling him to write it down on a scroll, right? Unroll it, write down in columns, describe what you see, and then cut it off from the roll and roll up what you've written, seal it, and then send it out. So he says, send it to the seven churches. Now, as you look at the map, you can see the orange line that's drawn. And if you read the names there, they're, they're in the sequence that they're listed there in verse 11. This is probably a postal route, a normal way of carrying mail. So imagine what's going on here. So John writes down this scroll. He finishes it up. He cuts it off from the roll. He rolls it up. He seals it. And then he hands it to a messenger who can leave the island. John can't leave. He's in exile. He's not allowed to leave. So a messenger takes it in hand, gets in a boat, goes over and sails to a port, and then goes into the city of Ephesus. What does he do there? He finds an elder of the church at Ephesus, and he tells the elder, I have a message from the Lord that was given to the apostle John in exile. And the elder then says, great, let me gather together all of the believers in Ephesus, probably on the next Lord's Day. The next Sunday, let's gather them together and then we're going to have somebody read through the whole thing from start to finish. So somebody's going to unroll the scroll, whether that be the messenger that carried it or the elder or somebody else in the congregation. They're going to stand up and read it from start to finish. What we know of as the book of Revelation, it would have taken about an hour to do, assuming that they didn't give some explanatory comments along the way, but that's the normal practice in the ancient world. That's probably the way all the New Testament documents, gospels, letters, and this wonderful book as well, were handled. 
The first time they got together, they get together and somebody stands up and reads the whole thing start to finish. About an hour long in this case, and I trust they listened well. So what happened then? Well, probably somebody amongst the Ephesian Christians copied it down for them to keep in Ephesus and continue reflecting on it because they recognize that this is God's word to them. And then the original scroll was handed off to another messenger who would take it to the second city, Smyrna there, and then they would go around to all seven churches that way. Now, if you looked at a full map of this area and you looked at all of the cities that were there, you would recognize several other cities from the Bible. You would recognize other cities that we know had churches, thriving churches even. And you might wonder, why just these seven? Why not ten? Why not five? Why these seven? Well, what you begin to see very clearly, and then if you're immersed in the Old Testament and the ancient world more generally, you recognize that numbers take on a symbolic significance very often, even beyond their literal significance. And so, yes, this is addressed to those specific seven congregations. But the number seven is surely, surely, in this case, symbolically significant in that he's saying this message is for these seven churches, but it's also for the whole church. The number seven often signifies completeness or wholeness. It does so in scripture and it does so in the ancient world more broadly in other places. And so he's probably giving us a hint already. This book is not just for these believers in the first century. And I might add, it's not just for the believers who will be alive in the final phase of history at the very end. It's a book that is directed and addressed to all Christians of all times in all places. It's for you and for me and for us together as a church. And so we need to see what's here this on this Easter Sunday. It's verses 12 to 16 that give us the heart of this picture and shows us the glory of the risen Jesus. And I'd love to sit here for a long, long, long time and talk more about it. But we're going to run through this a little bit quickly. What I'd like to do is akin to opening up a fire hydrant and asking you to come and drink. So take in as much as you can and be drenched by the rest and we'll shake it off after. But what you need to know is that John is seeing all these things, all right? With his eyeball, he's seeing this picture. And now he's been commanded to... Describe it on paper. That's hard with normal stuff. This is not normal stuff. So he's grasping for language. But what he's done, I'm convinced, is to describe what he sees with phrases that are borrowed from the Old Testament at every single point. And he does that because every point that he draws attention to. Every point in the vision that he draws to our attention, that he identifies, because you got to know he saw more than this, but he's only able to focus here and then focus there. But the pieces that he draws our attention to have a meaning. They have a significance beyond, well, this was just something nice that I saw. 
And the way that you understand what he means, what the pieces of the vision means, what the message of the imagery is, is by identifying its Old Testament roots. And so what I'd like to do is to read through a series of Old Testament verses. And so uh, they're in your sermon notes. If you've got those, you, and you can follow along that way, I think we'll have them up on the screen for you as well as we go through five Old Testament passages. And I'm going to just read through them right now, because what I want to happen to you is what I think happened to at least some of the Christians in these cities. They knew their Old Testaments really, really well. And so when they heard certain phrases, they called to mind certain passages of Scripture. And I want that to happen for you. And so I want to read these verses that I think are centrally in John's mind as he borrows these phrases, because that's going to be the key to understanding why does Jesus appear this way? We already know that this is going to be a vision about Jesus. So I'll go ahead and give you that. Why does he appear this way? with these features. And each point is important and is drawn out of the Old Testament. Five passages are central. There are a few others that John draws on that I'll mention later. They're kind of on the margins and I'm not gonna read them up front, but I'll mention them. When I'm done reading these Old Testament verses, I'm just gonna read through verses 12 to, four, 12 to 16 and allow you to make the connections, mostly. Now, I've underlined words in your sermon notes so that you can visually make the connections. But I hope you'll go home later. You're already home. You'll open up your Bible later and read these passages in their contexts alongside this passage in Revelation. And then think about the connection between the two. We're not going to take the time to do that in this message, but I want you to read through them. And then I'll give you a summary that's there in your sermon notes as well and elaborate on a little bit of it after we read through the verses. So let's begin. Let's read through the Old Testament verses and I'll make a few comments to situate them contextually and then we'll see what we can, what connections we can make. So picking up in your sermon notes there, Daniel chapter seven, verse nine. Daniel is seeing a vision here. So notice that, first of all, John's seeing a vision and he goes back to the Old Testament where Old Testament folks saw visions. Interesting. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel writes, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Daniel sees God sitting on his throne. He's identified as the Ancient of Days. Now, a few verses later in Daniel 7, so part of the same vision, looking at a vision of heaven with God sitting on his throne. A few verses later, Daniel 7, 13, another figure appears. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now the next passage skips ahead, still looking in the book of Daniel. 
Daniel chapter 7 is a vision that Daniel saw one time. Daniel chapter 8 is another vision that Daniel saw on a different occasion. And then Daniel chapters 10 through 12 is the final vision that Daniel saw on yet another occasion. And we're picking up in the middle of Daniel 10. Daniel 10 verses 5 and 6, Daniel writes, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Now, if you read through Daniel 10, you quickly realize that this is no man. He initially sees and he describes what he sees with his eyes. It looks like a man, but you quickly realize as you read through Daniel 10 that this is actually an angel that he sees. Daniel sees an angel who's been sent to him to deliver a message, to kind of navigate this vision that Daniel saw. The next passage is Ezekiel 43 too, another vision. Ezekiel receives a vision that's recorded in chapters 40 through chapter 48, the grand conclusion of the book of Ezekiel, a vision of a grand temple being put together, and it starts functioning with priests and sacrifices and things of that nature. And in the middle of that vision, Ezekiel 43, 2 says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Now, the last passage that I've listed here is not a prophetic text. 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. This is a part of what's recorded as the last words of King David. As King David is about to die, he composes a poem, a song, and we get those words in 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. David writes, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. I think this is the only Old Testament passage that actually speaks of the sun shining. So, with some of that rattling around in your brains or sitting there on the paper in front of you, let's look at Revelation 1, verses 12 to 16. So John is now going to describe what he saw. John writes, Revelation 1, 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll come back to them. You didn't see seven golden lampstands or anything in these verses. We'll come back to them because Jesus will explain their meaning to John and to us. Verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe. This appears to be a priestly robe. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash, or belt, around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We'll come back to them as well. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
Now, let's run through just a brief summary of what the whole picture is meaning to convey in all of these pieces. What is the vision trying to tell us? Here it is in a long sentence with lots of commas and semicolons, and I'll make a brief digression as well in the midst of the sentence, but you can follow along in your sermon notes. John sees the human figure who receives an eternal kingship in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, wearing the priestly robe of Exodus 28, 4, with a golden sash like the angelic figure of Daniel 10, 5, but higher. See, in Daniel 10, Daniel saw the angel wearing a golden belt around his waist. But John sees this figure wearing a golden sash, and sash and belt are actually the same word, uh, a golden sash up around his chest. And I think that's on purpose. That's meant to communicate that this figure that John sees is of a higher rank, higher dignity, higher power than the angel of Daniel 10. Don't we learn something about that in the book of Hebrews? Jesus is greater than angels, better than angels. And so that's what John sees here. With white hair like the ancient of days in Daniel 7, 9, so like God fiery eyes like the eyes of the angelic figure of Daniel 10.6, with glowing metallic feet like the metallic arms and legs of the angelic figure of Daniel 10.6, with a voice roaring like the glory of God in Ezekiel 43.2, with the sword-like mouth of the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 49.2. The sword coming out of his mouth representing the word of God that is spoken to judge the nations. And isn't that a large part of the book of Revelation? Whose face shines like the sun of the Davidic king ruling justly from 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. So that's a very fast-paced and undetailed summary of the picture that we're given of the glory of the risen Jesus in Revelation 1, 12 to 16. Let's see how John responds to this initially. Revelation 1.17. So in this paragraph, Jesus is going to reach down to comfort John. He's going to raise him up to commission him. He's going to identify himself. And that's interesting because it seems like John doesn't recognize who it is yet. He's describing what he hears and what he sees, but it seems that he's not real clear on what's going on. That seems reasonable to me. If I put myself in John's shoes, and then John explains, or Jesus explains, a mystery about the stars and the lampstands. So verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the same thing Daniel did when he saw this angel in Daniel 10. But he laid his right hand on me. Pause there for just a moment. Notice, the right hand that holds the seven stars. We haven't talked about what that's all about yet, but notice that hand, the right hand that holds the seven stars, reaches down to comfort John and to raise him up. As one writer puts it, the one who controls the cosmos consoles the individual. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I've died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys 
of death and Hades. I am the first and the last. Those words three times in the book of Isaiah, the Lord himself, Yahweh himself says, I am the first, I am the last, there is no God besides me. Here, this figure, Jesus, is saying those very words. I mean, if you think about it, there can only be one first, right? There can be only one last, and it's God. And Jesus is saying, I am God, fully God. I am the first, I am the last, and the living one. The source of life itself. Life is what Jesus has and what Jesus gives. He has the power of life. And then right after saying that, he says, I die. John, speaking to John here, that apostle who knew Jesus so well, who was able to call himself the one Jesus loved, the one that seems to have had a closer relationship with Jesus during his earthly ministry than any of the other disciples, he has to be reminded, he has to be informed of who this is. This figure that he sees is not recognizable as the one against whose chest he lay at the Last Supper. So Jesus says to him, John, I died. You saw it. You watched from a distance as I hung on that cross. You were there. I died on that cross. I died for you and for all of my people. I died. That's who I am. That's what I did. And behold, just a reminder, when you see the word behold in your Bible, you need to pause and let the author of the text grab you by the collar and pull you down. Get your attention focused right here. He wants you to see. Look here, John. Look here, readers. I am alive forevermore, never to die again. Jesus' death, what he just mentioned, beat death, conquered death, so that he will never suffer death again. He will never experience death again. He is alive forevermore. And then he adds, I have the keys of death and Hades. Why does he add this curious phrase? Keys. John didn't see keys in the vision, it doesn't seem. John didn't describe what he saw as holding a key ring or having keys around his belt or keys in his hand. But Jesus says, I own these keys. I have them. As a result of my death and resurrection, I own these keys. And in my Bible, and I think in most English Bibles, death is capitalized here. Because Jesus, as he says this, is personifying death as the great enemy. The great enemy that has been beaten by Jesus' death. He's beaten him and taken his keys. What do keys do? They open doors. They give access. They let people in. But that can be good or bad. In fact, they can open a door that then ushers you into a wonderful place. Or they can open a door to a prison cell from which you will never return. Jesus is saying, I now have these keys. The power over, the authority over death and Hades. Hades 
is not hell. Hades is the place where dead people's spirits go. Hell is a place where people go, body and soul, after the resurrection on judgment day. He's not talking about that place. He's not talking about the lake of fire that gets mentioned later in Revelation. He's talking about the place where the spirits of the dead go. And he's saying, I have power over that. I have the key. And I think we're supposed to take great comfort from this word. See, his original audience, these Christians in Asia Minor, were being persecuted by the official government that had the power to chop off their heads. They were likely going to face death. And the message of the book, as I remind you, is to see Jesus in his risen glory so that you might endure suffering all the way to death. And if you see that Jesus himself, this one that we know of as the good shepherd, is this one that we know of as the king of kings. He is the one who has authority over death. You should take great comfort. Because it means that no one dies unless Jesus allows it. No one dies unless Jesus allows it. We're supposed to take really good comfort from that because we know who Jesus is in his sovereign goodness. He has the power over death and life. A few years ago, my wife's niece in her early 20s found her 19-month-old baby dead. And Tamara had a chance to talk with her on the phone that very evening. And as much as she could get out from her, one of the things that my niece said was, I don't understand why God allowed my baby to die. I don't either. But I don't have to have an answer to the why question to know that if Jesus is in charge of death, I can trust him in having good reasons for all that he does. You may be feeling the same kind of thing or have the same kind of questions. A grandson killed in an automobile accident. Others uh, who've lost loved ones in what we would call accidents or tragedies. In this world, we might have that same question nagging at us from time to time. Why? And we have to admit that we don't know the answer to that question. What we're called to in these moments, in the face of these kinds of losses, is to trust him. To trust him. Because we know that he's really good and that he always does only good. And that is difficult to do. But to know that Jesus and Jesus alone has the power over death and Hades, the corollary is true as well. Nobody else has those keys. You see, cancer does not have the authority over death. The government doesn't have the authority over death. Terrorists don't have the authority over death. Viruses don't have the authority over death. Jesus alone has the authority over death. And he's good. He's really good. And so we're supposed to take comfort from this image of Jesus being the only one who ever, whoever opens the door 
for anybody to die. And out of that picture, Jesus commissions John to write again. Verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, as you can perhaps imagine, or if you've studied the book of Revelation at all, you probably know that both pieces of this aspect of the vision, the stars and the lampstand, their identity and their meaning is debated. What's going on here? The majority opinion on the stars being the angels of the seven churches has been throughout church history, I think, that Jesus is referring to heavenly beings, angels in the traditional sense uh, that we think about. And the idea then comes that each local church has somewhat of a guardian angel, a heavenly figure that is somehow responsible for each body of believers. And that's who's being referred to here. That's the majority opinion throughout church history, I think. The minority report throughout church history as well has been that this is a reference to human messengers. The word translated angel just means messenger. Uh, it does very often refer to heavenly messengers, messengers sent from heaven to earth, usually to deliver messages to people. Personally, my own opinion is with the minority report. And here's the main reason why, and this may just be my own limitations and my own lack of understanding. It's hard for me to figure out why the Lord would send a message to a heavenly being through a human apostle. The letters, seven letters are going to come up next, Revelation chapters two and three, addressed to these specific churches. But they're actually addressed directly to the angel of each of the churches. And it's just hard for me to imagine why Jesus would send a message on human paper to a heavenly being. That's just me. And so I go with the minority report and say that this is a messenger to the church. Now, what does that mean beyond that? I'm not sure. Is it an elder or pastor? Is it a church leader of some kind? I'm not sure. Is it the messenger who carries the book from John off the island of Patmos? Maybe, but I'm not sure. At least as of right now, my conclusion is that we're referring to a church leader of some kind without being any more specific. If that's true, here's the point. Here's why that should be such good news to us. He saw in the vision Jesus holding the seven stars. Now Jesus tells us are these messengers of the churches. If that's a reference to human church leaders, that ought to be really comforting to us in the body because Jesus holds them in his right hand. And if Jesus is holding your leaders in his right hand, you can trust them. And it doesn't mean that leaders, church leaders don't make mistakes. That doesn't mean that church leaders are given a heavy-handed authority to lord over the body. It simply means that we can expect Jesus to be working specifically and especially in the lives of those the Spirit has equipped 
to serve the body as believers. Seven lampstands are easier to define. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. That was the first thing that John saw, right? He turned and saw seven lampstands, seven candlestick kind of things with light shining bright. And in the middle of them is Jesus standing there in all his risen glory. The message of this is obvious and simple. Jesus is in the church. Jesus is in his people. If the seven churches are not only those seven local bodies that he wrote to, but a symbol of the whole church, both of those things I think are true, that's really comforting. The resurrected king, this figure that we see so powerfully portrayed here in this vision is with us and even in us. That's really comforting. He's not just in heaven. He's here. He's with us. He's in us to empower us by his spirit. And that, I think, is the point of that piece of the vision. So with this picture on the table, what do we draw from this for ourselves? Why is this so fitting to open up on Easter Sunday of all Sundays? Well, if nothing else, it's the resurrected Lord who addresses us, who, who's addressing this letter. The whole book of Revelation is a letter sent to God's people. So the risen Lord is addressing us in this book. That's enough. But there's perhaps more because when we see this glorious vision of this one who appears as the one like a son of man who is the king, the one wearing a priestly robe, he's the king and the priest. He's greater than the angels. He is God himself with this long white hair being depicted here. This one who is fully man. Fully God is with us and for us, not only on Sunday morning, not only on Easter, but every day. We ought to be celebrating Easter more than once a year. Because the fact is, whenever we commune with Jesus, we're communing with this guy. We're communing with the one here, the one who is depicted as this gloriously powerful risen king. We get to meet with him every day. And certainly when we come together as a body, whether physically present together or merely virtually, Sunday in and Sunday out, that's what we're here for. We want to hear his word. And you've got to know it's this guy who's addressing us every Sunday through the word. It's him who speaks. And so we hear and we want to hear the voice of the risen king. The one whose voice is loud and clear like a trumpet and powerful like the roar of many waters. But not only on Sunday mornings, every day of your life. If you want to sit down and commune with the King of Kings, guess what? He welcomes you into his presence. Every time you take this book in your lap. Every time you put in a CD into the car or in a CD player and it reads God's word to you, it's him who's speaking to you. It's this glorified king, this risen Lord who speaks to you through the pages of this book. Every time you open these pages, you're sitting before him and he wants you to see him. He wants you to see him like this in all of his glory and in all of his splendor, because if you could see him like that, 
Why would you run to lesser things? If you could see him like this in his beauty, all things that distract us from that should get pushed to the side or take their proper place in pointing to him as well. And so we wouldn't be so quick to distort the things of this world and to take them into ourselves as gods. No, we look to the risen king and we see him in all his glory and we seek to put everything that's in this world in its proper place under him. And so we want to commune with him. We want to hear from him and we want to serve him. He is our king. He's our risen Lord of the universe. And he's with us. He's with us. If we could see him as he is, it doesn't matter what suffering we face, whether our bodies break down into pieces, because they will, whether we lose those we love, because we will, whether the government implodes in on itself, because eventually it will. If we could see him as he really is, because none of that is going to change who he is, then we can endure don't have a relationship with this Jesus. He offers himself to you today. He is everything you need, everything you've ever wanted. If you have even an inkling of an awareness that you ought to live for more than yourself, let me assure you this king is worth living for. He, his kingdom is everlasting. The privileges and benefits of living in his kingdom and for this king are beyond counting. I've known him personally for 23 years, and he's never let me down. He's walked with me through all manner of chaos and failure and sickness and suffering. And he's given me every good thing I've ever had. He makes good on all his promises. The life he offers, the life he provides, is resurrection life. It can start right now, and it will last forever. Coronavirus can't touch it. Satan can't touch it. Even death can't touch it. Jesus once said these words to a woman named Martha who had just lost her dear brother to an illness. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked her, do you believe this? I ask you the same thing. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he died to pay for your sins? Do you believe that he rose from the dead, never to die again? Do you believe that he has the power over life and death and can give you resurrection life, eternal life, life that will never end, even if you get sick, even if you die physically? Cry out to him right where you are. Entrust your life to him. If you know this guy, this one described in Revelation chapter 1, he will change your life for good and forever. Father, thank you for giving us such a king, such a Lord, such a Savior. We worship him on this Easter Sunday. We thank you that you have given us life, resurrection life, that even now as we live, we have the freedom that we never had before. Jesus provides a freedom that no one can know without him. 
We are free to live for him, to live a life that pleases God. Thank you for setting us free through the death of your son. Thank you for raising him from the dead to give us the hope and the assurance that we need that the payment that was made in his death was good for, for our sins, that it was sufficient to cover all of our failings. Thank you for loving us that much that you would give up your own son. He didn't deserve to go through suffering and tribulation. He didn't deserve to die. But he chose to, out of love for us, out of love for you. Thank you, oh God, for what you've done for us. Would you help us to live an Easter resurrection mentality every day of the calendar year, not just once a year in the springtime. And oh, Father, as we continue to face this trial, we continue to see suffering around us and in our own bodies. You give us faith, strengthen our endurance through this trial. Enable us to endure with deep faith in our resurrected Lord. Help us to be satisfied with the good that he provides. Help us to be wise and loving of our brothers and sisters. and Careful with the life that you've given to us. Thank you for the bodies that we have, broken and weak as they are. Thank you that you will raise them someday in the future. Guaranteed, because of Jesus' resurrection, we too shall be raised in these very bodies in which we live. And we will rejoice and celebrate in their perfection. Give us grace to trust you until that day. For Jesus' sake. Amen.